Genesis chapter 24, starting with verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. And then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, in the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show me steadfast love. And show steadfast love to my master, Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant, Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master." And before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please let me, uh, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way of the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the word of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. And he went to the man and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. 
Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given me him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my, uh, for, for my uh, son from my clan and from my father's house, and then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little drink, a little water from your jar to drink. And who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before they had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to, to the spring and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink. I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose, and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard these words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments, and he ate and he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, uh, let, the woman, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to, him, to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. And so they sent away Rebekah, their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Laha Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted her, up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and she said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Thank you all 
You did work today. You did work. You know, they say, I hear, that the church is in decline in America, that, that there are more what they call nuns, those who have no religious affiliation whatsoever than ever before, that young people are leaving the church, that many young people will never I've even been to church. Never. Uh, hardly know even what the Bible says, what the gospel is, who Jesus really is. That even within the church, uh, there's rampant biblical illiteracy. People ask the question, are, are, are those who even go to church, who even call themselves Christians, are they even really Christians, and they have reason to ask that question. Some wonder if in a generation or two, what will, what will, what will be? What will happen to the church? Will there be a church in America at all? These are the kinds of questions that keep pastors like me up at night, Right? But then I ran into this little, this, this obscure little verse. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's in Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18. It says this, And Jesus came and said to him, said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Oh, you've heard, you've heard of that verse? This is, this is my sarcasm. You can, you know, I'm being sarcastic. Maybe you haven't heard of that verse. Now you have. But if you didn't know, that's not very obscure passage. It's, a pretty well-known one, and one that is often repeated in churches around our country, right? Around the world. And generally, the focus in those passages is the middle part, the middle bulk of it, you know? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teach them, uh, you know, that, that part, but I want to I pay attention here as we, as we jump into this passage. I want you to pay attention to the ends, the beginning and the end of this, these, this verse, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. What does it say? It says Jesus himself, the last thing he does right before the ascension, basically, he says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Is mine, Jesus says. And then at the end, he says, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Until I return, I will be with you, my disciples. I want you to notice that Jesus' position here is not a defensive one. It's an offensive one, right? They say the best defense is a good offense. That's Jesus's take on his mission in the world through the church. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a passage. We got to play defense sometimes. We got to, you know, defend against false teaching. We got to defend against, you know, the, this and that. But, but by and large, Jesus's position is, the best defense is a good offense. It's not grit and bear. It's go there. And so I want to ask the question this morning, does our perception of our current moment, of our current place, carry more weight than the promises of God? Does, does your 
perception of your current moment and place, the situation in which you find yourself, does it carry more weight than the promises of God? Church, does our time and place right here, right now, 2022, in America, with everything that we see going on in the world, with all of the opposition that we see to Christ and to the gospel and to God's word, does that does our perception of that carry more weight than the promises of God? That all authority is Christ's and that he will be with us to the end of the age. There's no gap. 2022, he didn't forget about. He's with us right now. Now, Abraham, he's laying here. He's near death. These are the last words that he is going to, that's recorded from him in the book of Genesis. So we know even by what he says to his servant, make sure you don't get a wife for my son from the Canaanites. He is even assuming I may die at any point. His wife has already died. He has one son. He has no daughter-in-law. I would imagine if he's thinking about these promises of God to him, many descendants, he has to be thinking, if, if, some, if, if, I, don't, if I don't get Isaac a wife, the right wife, all these promises of God could be done in, in less than two generations. Toast. And he's sitting here in the middle of all these Canaanites, and so all the wife options, if you will, all the eligible bachelorettes are Canaanites, and he knows that's not going to work. The Israelites who are reading this story, the, the first audience of, of, of the book of Genesis, the Israelites as they're entering the promised land, they're surrounded by Canaanites on every side, just as Abraham is surrounded by Canaanites on every side, right? And they've got to be thinking to themselves, how will God keep his promises? How will God's people survive in this situation, let alone thrive? And I wonder if we don't think that sometimes ourselves in our current moment. How are God's people, how is his church going to survive with the way things are right now? Let alone thrive as it seems like Jesus says the church will. That the gates of hell will not prevail against him and against his church. And who of us haven't seen someone who seemed to be a Christian and have walked away or, or felt the pressure of the world against us? Have wondered if that person we've been praying for will ever repent and believe in Christ, will ever put their faith in Christ, be changed. Who of us have not struggled with the same sin over and over again and thought, will I ever pursue Christ instead of pursuing this thing? Will Jesus ever give me victory over that? How many of us have laid awake at night concerned for our own children as they grow up in the present moment, wondering how will they end up? And so I ask you again, does our perception of our current moment, our current place, our current time carry more weight in our heart than the promises of God. That Jesus really does have all authority. That he really is directing history. And that he really will be with us to the end. Put it another way, and, and what I believe is the main point of this passage is this. God shows his steadfast love through his providence. God shows his steadfast love through his providence. That's the answer I want to give to you to this question. If your perception is that, man, we are losing, we're on the losing team, then I propose to you this morning this truth. God shows his steadfast love through his 
providence. What do I mean? Steadfast love. Let me define some terms so that you understand as we move forward into this story. Steadfast love is the faithful and loyal kindness of one to another according to the relationship. In this case, God's covenant with Abraham and God's covenant with us as Christ followers through Christ, his covenant defines the relationship that he has with us. He said, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And when he said that, he will stay loyal to that. He can't do otherwise. His steadfast love never fails. Providence, what do I mean by that? Providence is God's provision according to his foresight, that he can see what you need beforehand and orchestrate the events of history to bring that about just when you need it. His ability to prepare what he knows is necessary before we even get there. And if this is true, it changes everything, right? It changes our outlook and it changes our actions. When he says that he's with us, it's, it's not less than comforting in hard times. It, it is that. But it's not only just comforting. It actually means that we can expect to win. Since, God's, since God shows his steadfast love through his providence, we can do at least four things. These four things we can do that I want to share with you this morning from this story. The first thing is this. We can commit dutifully, trusting God will do his part. We can commit dutifully, trusting that God will do his part. Abraham's last recorded words are here, and his concern is the continuation of God's promises and blessing, the mission that God has given him and his family on the earth. And we should be concerned about that too. That middle part of that passage in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, to go therefore and make disciples, baptizing and teaching them to obey all that God has commanded of us. We, I don't think we take that seriously enough. And he instructs his most trusted servant to find a wife for Isaac with two important commands. First, that Isaac, that the wife is not a Canaanite. And second, that Isaac does not leave Canaan. He is not to go back. If she won't come here, he is not to go there and stay. Why? Because that would be disobedient to, the, to what God said in Genesis 12. See, looking back through the story of Genesis, we see that while God calls them into the promised land, into Canaan, and yet they are supposed to be stay uh, separated, to be set apart from the Canaanites. And if we look back all the way to Noah, Noah's son Ham, we see that the Canaanites are associated with, with the seed of Satan, with the bad seed throughout the book of Genesis. And looking forward to the Israelites entering the promised land, we see that that they're not to be a part of the Canaanites, they're not to, to mix with the Canaanites, that God is going to expel the Canaanites out in, from in front of them, and, and they're to take the land. And so, so, so Isaac is not to take a wife from the Canaanites, yet he's supposed to stay there. And the servant, I mean, understandably doubts, like, you want me to travel? It's 21 days journey, I believe, from where he is to where he is going approximately. 21 days he's going to travel, and you want me to find one woman to be the right one, to be Isaac's wife. And then say, hey, you don't know me. I don't know you. You really don't know the person I'm proposing that you get married to. But you want to you travel 21 days away and never come back and see any of your family? Put a, I'll put some gold bracelets on your wrists. I mean... Like, think about this. This is wild. This is wild. But Abraham responds. First, he emphasizes the command. Don't, don't try to fulfill the mission via disobedience, right? 
Don't try to fulfill the mission via disobedience. It doesn't work that way. And friends, if you are thinking, I'm going to try to, to, to make disciples, I'm going to try to, to go there for, I'm going to try to baptize people, bring people to Christ without doing, without listening to and being obedient to what Christ has commanded us to, that last part of the Great Commission, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, you are setting yourself up for failure. He says, no, God will do this. He will go before you. But, but interestingly, in verse 8, he gives the servant an out. He says, look, Abraham doesn't doubt. Abraham knows. But he says, hey, you know, I understand that maybe you don't have the same faith that I have, that God's going to do this. So if she won't come, you can be released from this oath. But no, God will send his angel and it will happen. It will happen. And then he, then he reemphasizes the command, do not be disobedient. And it's interesting, what he does is he puts the weight of the responsibility not on the servant, but on God, right? Now, the servant has things to do, but the servant doesn't carry the weight of the responsibility. And friends, you have things to do in fulfilling the Great Commission and sharing the gospel and making Jesus known, but you don't carry the weight of the responsibility. It's not your job to convince someone definitively to believe in Jesus. So, while the servant did have responsibility in fulfilling the task in the right way, at the same time, the outcome depended on God. We have that duty to go make disciples, to multiply Christ followers, to teach them to obey, to fill the world with God's name and glory. And, and Jesus promises that he will go with us. He will carry that responsibility. Just as, the, as Abraham says, the angel of the Lord will go before you, so Jesus says, I am with you. But, but I want you to understand that whereas, whereas the point of the servant finding Isaac a wife is that they can continue to fulfill the creation mandate, right? to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with the name of the Lord, right? It's also tied to what will become the gospel mandate, that through Isaac, the son of promise, the son of promise will come. And when the son of promise comes, he says, now go therefore and and." Bring about spiritual descendants. Multiply spiritually in the world. Carry my name and my glory all over the globe. But I don't want you to miss that the gospel mandate, it doesn't erase the creation mandate. It only expands it. The gospel mandate does not erase the creation mandate. We are still called to be fruitful and multiply in the same way that Abraham hoped for his son to find a wife and have children physically. We're still called to do that. God's designed us for that. Amen? And then, and then, we are called to make disciples of those children. to see them come to faith, be baptized, to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded of us. You see, the mission field of the world does not negate the mission field of your home, Christian. To grow your household and to make disciples there, to go with your household and make disciples of other households, and perhaps even to bring into your household those who have no household through adoption, through fostering, to make disciples of them as well. And so we 
can commit dutifully, trusting God will do his part. But there's another piece to this. Since God shows his steadfast love through his providence, we can act faithfully, trusting that God will guide you. How often, how often in life and in the mission of God do we think we need to know another thing to do something so we fail to do anything? But that's not what the servant does. Mind you, the servant does know a few things that we see in verses 10 through 28. He knows he's to go to a particular country. He knows he's to look for a a wife from Abraham's family. He knows he's supposed to find a wife. But that's really pretty bare bones, right? And that that feels like shooting an arrow at a target with a blindfold on, hoping that you hit the bullseye. But it does two things that I think we need to note for ourselves. The first thing he does is this. He acts according to what he does know. He acts according to what he does know. You actually know more than you let on. You know more about what God wants you to do and what Christ has called you to do than than you let on. The problem isn't that you don't know enough. The problem is you're just, you're not willing to risk to do it. It's scary, right? Man, it's scary. This is, I'm sure, this servant scared. What if I get it wrong? What if I find the wrong wife? What if I make a mistake? So he does this other thing. He prays and he trusts God with the rest. He acts according to what he does know, and then he prays and he trusts God with the rest. And when he succeeds, he attributes all that success to God because he knows I didn't do it. And here's my point. Too many Christians don't feel confident enough in what God wants them to do, so they don't do anything. We sit on our hands. They're all wrapped up in what might, we might call God's secret will. Those, those events that he's providentially decreed will happen. God, if you would just tell me your secret will, if you just tell me what is going to happen, if you would just tell me what you want me to do 10 years from now or five years from now or five days from now, then I'll do that, God. But, but you won't. You won't. If God told me, Five years ago, what I would be doing today and what it would take, I would have said no. That's the truth. If I'm really honest in my heart, I'd say, man, I don't think that's worth it. And so he doesn't. He doesn't tell me. (laughs) Now, I wouldn't go back and change it. I'm glad for it. But if I would have known ahead of time, I wouldn't have done it. And I don't think you would either. I don't think you would either because we're selfish. And even if I did know it, and even if I would do it, when I got there, I'd attribute all the success to me. That's what I would do. Even though God told, I would say, hey, look, look, hey, look how awesome I am. We planted a church. Isn't that cool? I'm pretty much awesome. But I'm not. See, we end up ignoring God's revealed will, the commands he's clearly given us because we want to know his secret will, his decreed will, when he wants us to trust him. You see, that thing that that you want to succeed at for God, he can succeed in that in any way he wants. He doesn't need you. Spoiler alert. But he wants to bring you along in what he's doing and in the process to grow you and to mature you. But you can't grow and mature unless you depend on him, unless you trust him. And so he doesn't tell you everything. The alternative is this. Pray and then do something. Christian, if you've been sitting on your hands, if you've been too scared to get in the game, too scared to do the work, too scared to get in the battle, listen, 
Here's what I have for you. It's really revelatory. Pray and then do something. Do something and see that God doesn't providentially get you where you need to go. What if you already know everything God wants you to know to take that next step you need to take? What if you already know it? What if you already know exactly how much he wants you to know? Not not, not too little, not too much. Is God sovereign or isn't he? Does he work providentially or does he not? Can he not take your honest but flawed attempt and direct it mid-path and get you where you need to go? You don't need, you don't, you feel like you don't know how to share the gospel with your neighbor or with your friend or with your coworker. So you do nothing, but that guarantees failure, right? I mean, that guarantees failure. I feel that. I've been there. I am there a lot of times. Do something and the Holy Spirit just might do what Jesus said the Holy Spirit will do. And who knows, you might grow yourself. You personally may grow spiritually in the process. It may actually lead you to fall on your knees and worship God as this servant does. To see God as being even bigger than you ever imagined that he was, even more in control than you could have ever thought. Or how about this, families? Fathers, let me speak specifically to fathers. You aren't sure how to disciple your kids. I know you aren't sure because I'm not sure how to disciple my kids, right? How do I teach these kids to follow Jesus? How do I teach them about, man, they're they're asking questions and sometimes I can answer a question when a 30-year-old asks it, but when my 12-year-old asks it, I'm just like, "Uh, I don't know how to answer that question. Listen, if you do nothing, it won't help. If you do nothing, it's not gonna help your kids. It's not gonna help them to know Jesus. not gonna help them to know how to follow him do something, you might feel foolish in what you're doing, but then again, God loves to take what's foolish in the world and make it his wisdom. It may just reveal his providence and steadfast love. You may get 20 years down the line and look back and go, oh my goodness, God really was orchestrating everything that was happening in my son or my daughter's life. Even my mistakes, he's used to grow them. Listen, understand this story is not a description. Uh, It is a description. It's not a prescription. It won't always work like this. It's not always going to be like, okay, God, if you make X, Y, Z happen, then I'll know and and, et cetera. And then you, okay. I I said, you know, if they give me a drink and they water my camels as well, like go out and do that. Say, okay, if they give me a drink and they water my camels, then, then, uh, then I'll share the gospel with them. I'll know that God wants me to share the gospel. Like, it's not going to work very well. Like, okay, but, but if you have camels to water, like, talk to me later because we need to hang out. Anyway. Listen, God's already made X, Y, Z happen. He came to the earth, he lived, he died, and he rose from the dead. And we have his word, we have what he's spoken to us already in his word. If God does something like he does for the servant here, great, but he doesn't have to do that. He's already done enough. He's already done enough for you to trust him and to obey. And when we do, instead of stealing glory for ourselves, it will lead us to greater awe and greater worship of him as we see the servant falling on his knees in verses 26 through 28. So since, God's, since God shows his steadfast love through his providence, we can, we can commit dutifully, trusting him. We can act faithfully, trusting him, that he's going to guide us. It's going to get us where we need to go. But we can also obey directly, trusting that God will provide what we need. We can obey directly. There's three questions and responses in this next section of the story. The first is Laban to the servant. Laban, uh, his sister comes in the house. And you're going to learn about Laban a little bit later. Laban, um, he's a shrewd businessman. 
Like when he sees an opportunity to make some money, like something's going to be financially beneficial, like he jumps on that situation pretty fast. And so Laban's sister, Rebecca, comes in. He sees that. He goes, okay, whoa, I need to get out there. I need to be, show some hospitality to this guy. Just put some gold bracelets on my sister's wrists. Like, well, I have some gold bracelets. I don't want to imply too much into his motives, but his character seems pretty evident from Scripture. So, so he goes and he's like, no, we've got room for you. I prepared a meal. You know, come, come into our house. And what does the servant say? Verse 33, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. Now, I don't know about you. Okay, so one of the things that I enjoy doing sometimes is I enjoy going backpacking. Now, I've never done a 21-day backpack. I mean, three days, and when you get off the trail, you are looking for somewhere to eat where you can just pound some food, right? I mean, I mean like if I could get a good Mexican restaurant after a hike, that's where it's at, you know? And I'm going to eat, because I've been eating, you know, I mean, it's fine on the trail, but it ain't, I'm not eating what I eat on the trail at home. Like, that would be terrible there. And so I'm thinking this servant, 21 days in, he's not had like a real great meal on his camel. And he gets all this food laid out. And what does he say? No, I won't even stop and eat. There's something that God's brought me here to do, and I will do it first. Many of us, Seek to obey God with that kind of ferociousness, right? Second, second situation that we see, second question and response is, is uh, the servant to Laban and Bethuel in verse 49. See, the, the, the servant explains all this happened. He tells that whole story again. You heard it. I read it. And, and then the response in verse 49 of Rebekah's father and brother. What does, it, what does it say? Verse 49. Maybe I've got the wrong verse here. I apologize. I think I wrote the wrong verse down. Oh, verse, verse 50. That's what it is. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. Remember, Abraham said, go and take. Abraham said to his servant, go and take a wife. And here, Bethuel and Laban say, take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son and the Lord, as the Lord has spoken. They respond, the thing has come from the Lord. We can't, what, what, who are we to even judge whether it's good or bad? See, this is a call back to the tree of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, right? Unlike Eve, who questioned the command of the Lord and desired to decide for herself what is good and bad, here they say, look, look who are we to judge what the God's doing? God's doing it, then we just trust it. We trust it. The Lord has spoken and we trust his word. But then the third situation is, is everyone else to Rebecca, right? You see, the next day, Rebecca's dad, I don't know where Rebecca's dad is the next morning. Uh, maybe he was partying a little too hard the night before. I'm not sure. But he's missing the next morning. And it kind of reminds us of Adam being missing at the tree. But Rebecca's mom is there instead, and she, she and Laban say, hey, well maybe, well, maybe Rebecca can just kind of stay like 10 days or so. Then, then she can go. And this, this phrase, staying 10 days, it's, uh, it's it literally, it's actually literally days or 10. It's kind of like, hey, can, maybe she can wait a week or so, with so being kind of an, an indefinite amount of time, right? So... Laban and Rebecca's mom, the next morning, decide they can speak bad or good. We're not saying, we're not saying that she shouldn't go with you, but eh, maybe on our timetable. 
for the servants I have in it. Do not delay me, he says in verse 56. And they decide to call Rebecca, and look what Rebecca does. This is, this is interesting. They ask her, will you go with this man? And, and remind, remind you of all the things I said before, like she just met this guy the day before. She has no idea. And what does she say? She says, I will go. And what does it remind us of? It reminds us of Genesis 12, where God says, go, and Abraham responds with faith, and he goes. And so Rebecca has the same kind of faith that Abraham has in Genesis 12. And she's blessed with a similar blessing as Genesis 12. In fact, the words of this blessing right here in verse 60, it actually is almost identical to the words that the angel of the Lord uses to bless Isaac on Mount Moriah after he's not sacrificed by Abraham and the ram is provided instead. If you look, if you compare those two those two passages, it's almost the exact same wording. And mind you, no one but Isaac and Abraham were there. Rebecca's family could have had no idea that that blessing was spoken over, over Isaac when they just spoke it over Rebecca. Again, God's providence and his steadfast love is all over this thing. So here's, here's my point uh, for us. A friend of mine used to tell his teenage kids this. He used to say, delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Christian, delayed obedience is disobedience. You know what God wants you to do, and you're like, eh, maybe not, maybe, maybe 10 days or so. That's disobedience. Now, 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 it gets complicated, right? Because when we're talking about negative commands, commands that, uh, something that we're not supposed to do, it's hard sometimes to listen and obey, but it's pretty simple. Like, like don't lie, okay? That might be hard at times. Like, I really want to lie right now, but, but it's simple. Just don't do it. Always, every time. But positive commands are different. Some commands in Scripture, you know, are things that we ought to be ready to do, but it doesn't mean we're like constantly, you know, going about doing them, you know, giving to others or sharing the gospel or, or praying for someone. You know, we might be in a particular situation and we might think to ourselves, should I do this right now? Should I give to this person? Should I say this verse? Should I ask them, can I pray for you? Should I do that? And when we get this sense that we ought to do one of these things that, that the scriptures directly tell us that we should do, that, that are good, but we wait and we waffle, we only ever open up the door for disobedience wider. Tell me that isn't true in your life. When you wait and you waffle, it only increases the chance that you're going to disobey, not the chance that you're going to obey. It's like, it's like when you send your kid up on the high dive to jump off for the first time, right? The longer that they stand there, if they don't immediately jump off that high dive, the longer they stand there, the greater your chance is that you got to climb up there and get them down, right? And no one wants to do that. Just push them off. Yeah. <laughs> this is Sparty out. There we go. As soon as we stand up there at that moment and God said, do this, and we stop and we look for a second, man, the, the, the distance looks farther, the water looks deeper. We think about ourselves doing a belly flop, smashing our face on the water. Like all those things start coming into our head, right? We are addicted to control. And we do not want to be put in a position where, where someone else can do us harm or we have to trust someone else. Where we go, I don't, I don't know how this is going to work out. But think about the position Rebecca is walking into. Best case, she marries a guy she's never met, she doesn't know. Worst case, well, it's the worst that you can think of. It's the absolute worst that you can think of. She's got no one that she knows. She's got no family to protect her. Her brother's not around. Her dad's not around. No one. She is as vulnerable as you could possibly be if she says, I will go. But listen, the mission of God demands your vulnerability. It won't work without it. If you don't trust God instead of yourself, you will see nothing. 
You'll see God do nothing through you. Rebecca had to see God's providence and trust in his steadfast love. See, since God shows his steadfast love through his providence, we can receive peacefully, trusting God will complete the task. This last brief section, it has three, three movements. First, first, Isaac is meditating in the evening out in a field. Why is he there? Well, we can assume, we can assume applied from the text that, you know, his mother has died recently. His father uh, maybe on his deathbed, uh, that, that transition of Abraham being the patriarch, the leader of the whole household, this massive household that God has blessed Abraham with is being transitioned to Isaac. If you've ever been on the verge of taking on a huge responsibility, a huge leadership, you know what that feels like, right? My goodness, am I ready for this? Am I capable of this? Can I do this? No doubt you've been in those moments where you were on your knees, and Isaac, the heir of this massive household, he doesn't even have a wife to continue it on. Second movement, Rebecca approaches verse 63 through 66, and there's this kind of minor tension in the story. Each one sees the other from a distance, and, and how's this going to work out? And Rebecca, you know, knowing that this is my future husband, this is Isaac, she, she veils herself, but it's, you see, it's not like in the movies, there's no like love at first sight. There's no like, oh, you complete me kind of a thing here. It's not about that. It's not about that. What's the decisive factor? You got, you got Rebecca veiled over here. He has no idea what she looks like. She just, he just knows she's there now. And, and Isaac does what? He talks to the servant. Tell me what happened. What did God do? What did God do? Where was his providence? And he hears the story and he goes, okay, that's good enough. It's good enough for me. Just like Rebecca trusted, that's good enough for me. So Isaac says, that's good enough for me. And so we have this third movement. Isaac brings Rebecca into Sarah's tent. And this is kind of an odd detail. You kind of wonder, like, like what does that mean? He went into Sarah's tent. That's kind of weird. His mom's dead. And like, what? But, but it actually is incredibly symbolic. Because when he takes her into that tent, what he is doing is he is saying and she is saying, I take up the mantle of matriarch of this household. The responsibility that Sarah had, I take on myself. And that's even bigger in the fact that we know that this is part of the mission of God in the world, right? She sub Isaac has a mission that God has given him. And she says, yes, I want to be a part of that mission. And I'll take up whatever I need to do. And so that little tension is, is uh, released and there's this resolution that reveals kind of a bigger resolution because it, what started with Abraham saying, go and take a wife for Isaac, ends with Isaac, with, with the phrase, Isaac brought and took Rebekah. It was done. God provided. God did it providentially because of his steadfast love. And the result is Isaac was comforted and consoled after his mother's death. You see, there's no, there's peace in knowing that even in a hard thing, God is at work, right? That even when it's difficult, even when we don't know how it's going to turn out, we see God at work and so we know God's doing something. And we can receive what God has brought us today, knowing that God will complete the task someday. God has you where you are for a reason, friend. He has you where you are for a reason. It's not coincidental. It's not luck. It's not fate. It's not chance. Those things don't work. If God is the creator of the universe and sustainer of the universe, those things don't exist. It's God's providence. God's providence. Steadfast love to you, church. So I want to apply this. I know I've gone along this morning, but I want to apply this just to a few groups of people quickly. Single people. Uh, first, I want you to know that this, this isn't really a, 
this isn't really a story about how single people get married, okay? That's not the primary application of this text, but, but I do want to speak to it for just a second because I do think it does, it can be applied there. You know, I don't think that you should send your dad's servant to a different country to find you a wife. That's not a good application of this text. But, it, but God's providence is revealed through steadfast love. And that does impact our lives right now. And so first, I, I want to say this. If, if you're a single person and you really want to be married, I want to tell you, do not idolize marriage so much that you miss what God is providentially doing in your life right now. Do not idolize being married someday so much that you miss what God is providentially doing in your life right now. The opportunities you have because you are single to serve him in different ways, he has you there for a reason. And, and if you would listen and obey, I am confident that God will use those situations to form you into the kind of person that you, your future spouse will want to marry. So trust him in where you are right now. The second is this. Are you pursuing a spouse in a way that upholds God's revealed will rather than just demanding to know his secret will? Rather than saying, God, would you just show me who you want me to marry? Instead, say, God, show me who you want me to be for my future spouse and let me do that. Because that is already written down here. That you can know. Trust him with the responsibility for the rest. Are, you, are the parameters for who you are looking for to marry God-honoring ones? Ladies, are you looking for a man who is on mission for God that you can join in? Men, are you, are you taking up the mission of God in your own life first and foremost? Or is finding a spouse number one? Because if you get those mixed around, you're going to have some problems. Are you praying to that end? Are you moving forward in relationships in a way that is obedient to God? Listen, if you are jump, jumping into relationships in ways that are disobedient to God and then expecting God to bless that, that's absurd. That's what that is. That doesn't make any sense. Are you trusting his providence in the meantime? Is God's steadfast love for you sufficient? Or is love from another person, your highest priority. Ultimately, here's the question for you. Do you see marriage as a means to your pleasure or a means to God's purpose, single person? And so, so, so that would be my application for single people, but, but for others, parents, potential parents, uh, parents who are potential parents again, right? Some of you are like, don't say that, Cody. Don't you say that. <laughs> I think it was easier for me to trust God's providence when I was single. It got harder when I got married, and it got way harder when I had kids. I don't know if that's been your experience. You know, I've seen God providentially orchestrate situations in my life, but then all of a sudden I start doubting whether he'll do it in my kid's life. Will he have the same steadfast love for them as he had for me? wonder, what about the places where I've already messed up as a parent? This is Abraham certainly had places where he had messed up. The question for you is, what will you do from this day forward? Do I trust God's providence when it comes to having a child, having another child, adopting a child, my adult children? Do I trust God's providence? Do I trust God's providence for the future faith of my child while also taking seriously the responsibility that I have that he's given me to act faithfully in that? Listen, ultimately, do you see having and discipling your children as a means to fulfilling the Great Commission? Or is that a separate thing? Because God sees them as one and the same. 
for many of you parents, your children is likely your primary mission field right now. Your primary mission field, and that's okay. That's good and right. And for all of us, as we seek to fulfill the mission of God in our lives, as we seek to share the gospel with others, as we seek to disciple other Christians or challenge them to be obedient to Christ, even and especially when it's uncomfortable, do we believe that Jesus really does have all authority? That he really is in control of everything, that he's working things out providentially but because of his steadfast love, that our perception of this moment pales in comparison to his promises? Do we really trust? Do we trust that he really is with us? That his steadfast love never fails us, never leaves us. He's not just loyal to us, but he's loyal to his own word and his own character. And certainly there are going to be difficulties in being a Christian. Jesus promises much, but we're not called to a faith that's just grit and bear it. Jesus, or just as Abraham was called to go and his servant was called to go and Rebecca was called to go, we are called to go, therefore, and make disciples, trusting in Christ.